I'm Michelle Olivier, and you're listening to Hey, I Want Your Job, the podcast that looks at amazing jobs and what it takes to get them. Hi, welcome to this week's episode of Hey, I Want Your Job. And I don't want Annie's job, but I do really want her product a lot because it's awesome. I would suck at Annie's job. Totally. What is your job title? First of all, I suck at my job too. So let's just put that out there. I'm a founder or soon to be co-founder of a food related startup. I have a few people joining the team soon, so I don't want to take everything from it, but yeah, I'm, I am a startup founder. Okay. And that was uh, unhelpfully vague. So let's try again. (laughs) What is your startup that you founded? What do you do? Yeah, no. So I started a found up called Recipe, which is an ad-free recipe platform. At home, you want to cook something new. You Google search creative chicken recipes and you get to a food blog. There's a ton of user experience problems when you land on that food blog. You're going to notice that it's super slow to load. There are tons of ads. You've got to scroll down 10 pages before you see the ingredients and you see the directions. And so I am here to solve a lot of those problems, but also doing it in a way that's sensitive and equitable for the people who are putting in the time and effort to give us that content, to develop the recipes, to pull from their culture and their family and their history to do that for us. So all the things you just said speak straight to my heart. Because I love to cook, I love food, and I am definitely the person who like, oh, recipe for best blueberry muffins in the world, why thank you. Five years of scrolling later about why they're vegan or why their grandmother one time took them to France and they saw a blueberry and I didn't freaking care. Bring me in with your recipe and then tell me about your grandmother. And if I give a shit, I'll read, right? I feel like they, they've got this backwards and yet I am still clicking through because I'm there for the blueberry recipe. Yep. And it's, it's super emotional, both for consumers. Obviously you have feelings, you have strong feelings about it. Anyone who likes to cook, who does online recipes, you have strong feelings about this. But on the flip side, creators also do because they're doing the best they can. They put a lot of energy and time into it and they hear that type of emotional feedback. This is stupid. I don't need your life story. All of those types of feedback, but there's just no good technology to facilitate a positive user experience. Like they, they want to give you a positive user experience, but they can't do that while also earning revenue from it. So that was going to be my question because that's what I have been told and you are the marketing Mm -hmm. guru. So let's First of all, clarify some things that I think I know and I may be dead wrong on. So I have been told that the way that their platform usually monetizes is it's based on unique visits to a page, but then also duration on the page. So that their ad banners, like the longer they keep you on the page, the more money that they in turn get. And thus they, from a monetization perspective, make it longer for you to get to their thing. But here's my question on that. So you're nodding sagely, which tells me that, yes, I am as smart as I thought, at least on this one item. So that's a good (laughs) But my question is this. Once I'm there, it's going to sit on my counter, on my phone, loaded, 
for the five hours that it takes me to actually make these damn blueberry muffins because I'm going to get out the blueberries and then the children are going to scream and then I'm going to come back. And so is that, is it not sufficient? Is it, is the technology there? Does it need me to be interacting? Is that the problem? Is it, so what's it's, going it's, on? It's a little more complicated than that. You're right in a lot of ways that page view, that's, you know, the first thing we have to bring a user to the page. And so there are time on page can be seen as an important factor, especially in terms of like SEO. Did you come and stay and engage? Google sees that, you know, as a signal, this is good content. So time on page is something that creators look at for ads specifically. They want you to pass by 10 ads, not two ads. And so if all they give you is the recipe smack dab at the top, you have your instructions, your directions, you have the beautiful photo, you're going to see the top banner ad. But if they put 10 ads before you reach that part, you're going to get more individual ad impressions. That's going to boost their revenue per view. And then also I've surveyed, I've talked to dozens and dozens of food bloggers and the people, 73% in the research I did, 73% of creators aren't happy with the amount of money they earn compared to the time and energy they put into their blog. So creators aren't even happy with their income, even doing all of this stuff. That 17% who reported, sorry, my math is way off. That 23, I don't know math. So that 27%, 27%, I think, let me get my calculator, 27% whatever it is, the minority of creators who said, yes, I earn a fair amount of you know, money for the work that I put into my blog, they were more likely, significantly more likely to monetize, not just through ads, but also through sponsored content and affiliate links. And so affiliate links specifically, if people aren't scrolling through, reading the equipment list, reading the exact brand of blueberries that you used and the spatula that you scraped the pan with, they rely on that too. And so as many product plugs as they can get, that's going to boost revenue as well. So there's a lot of different factors in how food bloggers earn money is time. Yes. Time on page, the links that you click, your curiosity around specialty equipment they use, passing by 10 different ads instead of three different ads, all of that kind of stuff um, contributes to it. And then things like pop-ups too, they want you on their email list so they can send you back to their website not someone else's blueberry revolutionary banana blueberry muffin recipe next time. And pop-ups are annoying. Nobody, nobody wants pop-ups. Nobody likes pop-ups, not a single person on the planet, but they work. So that's why they, people continue and marketers too, not just food bloggers and the newspaper, the newspaper website you go to has pop-ups and pop-ups and pop-ups. And it's because people put their email address in a lot of food bloggers have enticing freebies. So maybe you get the free recipe ebook or the, you know, perfect healthy shopping list, whatever it is they're offering. And that helps build their revenue as well, because then they have means to reach you again. So all of this makes me, I hear all the things and here's what my takeaway is. One, we need to start a concerted effort to absolutely boycott pop-up engagement. <laughs> yes. None of us <laughs> engage with the goddamn things. They will stop doing it. It won't work anymore. Yes. Let us. So I am happy to leave I that take the front. pledge. I will hear it so I solemnly swear that I'm both up to no good and shall herefore never again engage with pop-up. Done. Done. Yep. Two, they, I feel like 
I understand entirely where you're coming from, that there just needs to be a better way. Because, like, I know I'm on the ticky-talky like everybody because I'm a human. And I have 10 people that I like. And they all have Merc. And I have my Hey Colonizer pride shirt. Like, I have, I buy their Merc sometimes. But then a lot of the folks that I like, rather than having, like, their own Merc, they have a link to, like, Amazon where I can go there. And then because I clicked through them, they get a cut and that's the monetization strategy. I don't understand. And I feel like this is just you and I probably, this may already exist and I'm just naive, or maybe this is what where you and I should take over the digital world. (laughs) I don't understand why every single like good quality food blogger out there does not have some kind of a backend widget that ties into your local grocery store or the freaking Amazon food delivery and says, would you like me to put a list for all the things you need for this? Yep. And that is something that some, and then they that, get a cut. yeah, that's a technology that exists and a lot of the top food bloggers use it. It's a volume thing. So maybe okay. you get a thousand people to your website and one person spends $7 at the store, which you get. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it just, it takes a massive volume for that. Um, and a lot of that software isn't free. One of the great things about Recipe is that we are trying to increase access to monetizing your food content. So to be on our platform as a creator, you don't actually even need a blog. All you need is original, unique recipes that are written down. So you have a list of ingredients, you have a list of instructions, you have at least one original photo that you took, you have rights to your own content. Um, because starting a blog isn't Like you can go to, you know, blogger and and get a myfoodblog.blogger.com and you're stuck with the Google template or these, there are ways to start a blog for free, but when you search chicken recipe, you can bet that the people who rank at the top of Google have a lot of resources and we don't require you to pay for hosting. If you have a website, chances are you're paying for hosting. You have to buy your own domain name. You have to know what the heck SEO is. You have to know how to do it. Or in a lot of cases, the top food bloggers are outsourcing that. They're outsourcing their content. They're outsourcing the technical elements. Some people outsource their photography to do it at scale that reaches that sort of volume where you are earning a livable wage income. And we want top bloggers. We work with top bloggers, people who have big audiences, who have super high quality content. The person with the most resources doesn't necessarily have the most delicious recipe. I want your grandmother's recipe. Like these, I want something that's cooked in people's homes and food is like inherently cultural and historical. And I'm doing everything I can to respect the integrity of that. And that's where food bloggers get really sensitive around the, I don't want your life story sentiment, which is super, super common because of all of these user experience issues, because a lot of food bloggers have significant SEO content, which Honestly, I've been an SEO writer for food blogs before. I know what goes into that. How are we repurposing our leftovers today? We're going to write 800 words about repurposing leftovers, and then there will be a recipe. But especially when it's minority or non-white American creators, a lot of history and culture go into food. And it, it can feel a lot like saying, go back to the kitchen. We don't want this 
culture that you're giving us, this story of your grandmother that you're giving us, we only want the parts that we want to use. And so bloggers get really sensitive about that and understand the user experience problem of if you have 20 paragraphs before the instructions and the ingredients, it's really hard to cook the recipe. And then you're kneading your dough for five minutes and your screen dies. It goes to sleep because you've timed yeah. out. And then you're, you've got sticky dough fingers and you, yeah. you know, press the button and get dough all over your phone only to find it's taken you to the top of the page again. And you're like, yeah. I need the next step. I don't need my, my kitchen, screen. Annie. I, this <laughs> is my life. And I will tell you that like, I, so to your point, right? I have the boys will be I, two horrible small children. They'll be like, Mommy, we want to blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Sure, why the hell not? I can figure out how to make that. So I do what everybody does. I Google best recipe for blah, blah, blah. 50,000 of them come up. I click on them and I'm like, Ugh, that's a pain. Ugh, that's a pain. Mm -hmm. Ugh, that's a pain. Ooh, that looks good. Not a pain. Awesome. Put it up. And if it, I have had times where I have tried like 15 different recipes for banana bread because again, mom rotting bananas are a thing. And yeah. so I've had 15 different recipes for banana bread and consistently I don't even save necessarily the best banana bread recipe yep. because it was a pain in my butt because of what you just described. So the one that gets bookmarked that I'm going to keep coming back to is the one that was easy. dead easy. And then everybody loses, right? So the creator that had the better recipe loses. Yep. My whole family loses because <laughs> we eat crappier banana bread. So I am loving all of the stuff that you're saying. And I think I just want to piggyback off of that because I, about the whole, it is none of this shit is when I started the podcast a year ago, everybody was like, oh yeah, podcasting is a great way to build a presence and it's so free. So there's just no excuse to not do it. Girl, it is not free. <laughs> and, and you listed like a whole bunch of things that are part of the cost around like hosting, et cetera. But I think the big thing that you didn't list that is really, I think also ties in better to your point about the minority voices and that sort of thing is the time. Yep. Like we don't, you the only way you could ever do any of this for free is if you literally value your own time at zero. And we already have a problem of not valuing minority and women voices, <laughs> expecting them to do work for free. Yeah, exactly. And so when we are expecting them to create blogs so that we can, and then ignoring most of it, like it is that again. So I completely hear you and, and I'm excited. So recipe is a, you, it's a subscription service. Is that yeah. right? So I, as the would be banana bread maker pay you for access to the platform and great banana bread recipes. Yep. So think of it as Netflix, but for recipes or, you know, Spotify for recipes. Not yet. I mean, we want to be that good. We're getting there. So we have an, a library right now of 1100 recipes from a couple dozen small creators from around the world. And we have had tons of creator interest. So we're signing up new people every day. I, I have two, two licensing agreements in my inbox right now to process. So we're really going aggressive on building the biggest library possible because I want you to be able to find any recipe that you can dream of on our platform.
platform. Right now, our pricing structure is you can pay $50 a year for unlimited access to all of the recipes on our platform. Again, we have more than doubled our recipe library since we started in November. So we're going fast and aggressive at, you know, expanding that so, library. Like, and I hear what you're saying, but I also, the cynic in me is like mm -hmm. 1100 recipes sounds, but not in the greater scheme of recipes, yep. in the greater scheme of what people cook or might want to cook. You want to have, we have 11 million recipes and I know yep. that you're like, you're starting. And so that that's where the plan is. My question, is this the kind of thing that are you guys trying to use influencers? So are you trying to get Gordon Ramsay to show up with some recipes or are you trying to base it off of the individual, smaller contributors, artisan recipes, that sort of thing, as opposed to really big names? What's Yeah, so we are community there? focused. There are other websites and other platforms that leverage the celebrity voices. So Food Network, if you want Gordon Ramsay, Food Network. He's already there. They, yeah. they have ads, but you know. They have, all, but they're not much better than the other. They, yeah, they have a lot yeah, of the same problems. All recipes, all recipes is slightly easier to use in terms of user experience. You still got ads. You got ads all over the place. They're, they don't have a smart algorithm that can show you the good, what's actually good versus what's the easiest to get to and execute. And 1100 recipes, in the grand scheme of things, you're right. That's not enough to cover all possible recipe topics. My goal for 2022 was to have 10,000, like when we were launching in November, my goal for 2022 was to have 10,000 recipes before the end of the year. And so we launched November 16th. And today we only have 1100 recipes on the website, but we have licensing rights to over 5,000 recipes, January 6th. And so I am hopeful that we'll be able to blow past 10,000, possibly reach five times that by the end of 2022 with the rate of growth that we have on the creator side. So we're getting there and we are new and our product isn't perfect at this point. And so we really, we're not spending advertising dollars to get new members to our website because we're community focused. We want the people who want our product and who want to contribute to our product. Like you right. sound like a great type of customer for us because I can talk to you and I can say, what make, what, what do you want? How can I make this product perfect for you? And so having that first hundred customers that I can shoot an email to and say, we're working on developing these five features, which yeah. one is the most important to you? And you're going to tell me, how can I build this product for your, you are the persona. And at this point in our first year, we're not targeting hitting 20,000 consumer subscriptions. We're targeting today we have X number and tomorrow we want one more. And then the day after that, we want one more. And we're going to talk to those people and really understand because no one has done this well in the past. And one of the people joining me as a co-founder, he's a serial entrepreneur. He's been in startups for decades and he was probably like the third person I told about this idea when it was still a seed in my brain and I hadn't done anything to move towards making it a reality. And he said, first of all, this could be a billion dollar idea because it's just so vast and it's something that people are so emotional about. But secondly, he said, I actually tried this. I worked with a startup doing this thing in 2009. So people have been trying to solve this problem for decades. The one piece that everyone has missed is involving creators. People have created scraper tools where 
you know, you find the recipe for banana bread, you type the URL into this tool, it returns only the ingredients and only the directions. That's great for you cooking, but that cuts out the creator and that leaves them with nothing when they put, as you were saying, 20 hours into developing the recipe, shooting the photos, paying for their equipment, writing the SEO content, that cuts them out completely. And so we're leveraging a community approach where we are on a consent only model creators come to us, they sign a licensing agreement. They say, yes, use my content. You have my permission. These are the exact ways we're allowing you to use our content. And then this is the payment structure for creators. And so what we've achieved in our first two months is we've more than 10 X the payout per recipe view than the average creator would earn from advertisers. Oh, wow. um, and we're hoping that we're still small. We're saying per recipe, view. oh, a dog. You'll, you'll see them wandering Aww. around. We're saying we can pay 10X per recipe view, but when there's only a hundred recipe views, that's not a full-time income. And so we're hoping month over month, we had 16% growth in consumer subscriptions last month. So as we build and we prove it out, we prove, I can say we expect to be able to pay 10 times per recipe view than premium ad networks. That's great until you can actually do it. And so we, a month and a half worth of data that we're basing this off of that we've far exceeded that. And each month we have new subscribers. We have new subscribers that, that proves the concept. Another thing we're doing that no one else in this space that I've seen, no one in the creator economy space that I've seen, which includes all sorts of different things is we're working on developing a creator equity program, similar to an employee equity options program. If you join a startup in their early stages, the company to incentivize, maybe they're not paying you as much yeah. as if you go to Facebook to work for Facebook, you'll get a very small piece of equity in the company. And then in 10 years, when they go public, you have a fat stack. Of no, you retire. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Or you buy the $5 million house in Oakland, which exactly. obviously I can't promise that recipe will become a billion dollar <laughs> company. I, I hope so. Who knows what the future holds? Who knows if capitalism hasn't burned to the ground in 10 years? So <laughs> I love which, that. That's your dream that <laughs> everyone wins in that case too. So. Absolutely. Then we all just share recipes because we're yeah, good humans. Exactly. Um, I love all of this. I'm super excited. I will genuinely sign up for recipe because I'm super excited about that. But I want to zig now from talking about the product itself. Talk mm -hmm. a little bit more about you. I work with a lot of startups. A lot. So I know what your pain is. How much fun are. we're having. <laughs> Love you, girl. Good luck. <laughs> um, we'll have other conversations offline about otherwise I'm yeah. going to get myself. But um, I work with them all the time. And one of the things that about your story I think is really interesting and really struck me is often when I am working with startups, the founder, like they had a 3 a.m. shower idea. They have no business in this sector. They know yeah. nothing. So one of my favorite clients who is crazy and adorable and changing the world in all the best ways, that that's their deal, right? Like he had a great idea. He had none of the talent or skills to execute his idea. He went, found somebody to help facilitate that. He has built all of the things to go with it. But that's a pretty, like, that's the normal entrepreneur story. 
You are not that story, Annie. I don't know if you're aware, but there's every reason you should exactly know this market, that you should exactly be this person. And so I have all the questions. You have had a very successful career in marketing for all of the household names. And then you went, you know what? I hate money. I'm just going to no. go <laughs> and there's start no this lie. company. <laughs> I'm going to go make no fucking money, uh, but try to do something I like. What, what, like, was it just what we hear about on other podcasts and in movies and shit? I just, I had a dream and I couldn't not follow my dream. Or what was it that made you decide to say no to 401ks and yes to startup anxiety? Even better than that, not only when you have a job, they pay you to do work. And this switches it so that Right now, I am paying to do work. So you're right on, you're spot on there. I was that entrepreneur. I am a serial entrepreneur, which basically means I've failed over and over again, okay? And I, that, that causes me personally shame and gross feelings and discomfort because try to start up in 2017 with the same business partner I'm working with now. And we launched our product, we did the press release, and then we both got burnt out because we were working on other things and nothing has happened since. And so I, I felt a lot of that shame. And what really got me going again is watching cishet white men who have failed and keep trying on ideas they don't care about. They just think they can monetize because if they are serial entrepreneurs, for failing and then having another bad idea, getting it funded, failing again, having another bad idea and trying again. Like I, I am a, a serial entrepreneur if failing over and over is what a serial entrepreneur is. And so I've tried all sorts of things. I've done a lot of affiliate websites. I'm going to grow an affiliate website and earn money that way and quit my job and live on a beach I've, over and over or a drop shipping business that I don't really care about, but I think I can monetize. And for me, I last two to three months on those projects. And then I'm like, what's the freaking point? Like, why am I doing this? It, because it's hard. Doing a startup and actually growing a business that is sustainable and profitable is really freaking hard. And for me, my motivation does not come from, I might earn money in 12 months. And so that's me personally. And some people can work through that and grit their teeth and hunker down and do it anyway for six months or eight months or 12 months and grow their business because they have something that drives them to want to succeed. I don't have that when it's not something I care about. And this idea came to me, COVID shut down San Francisco. I had been working in my director of marketing job for a brand, a household brand that people have heard of and COVID shut down our office in 2020. And so I had a lot more time on my hands because I wasn't commuting three hours a day to get there every day. And so I started cooking a lot more at home and having this experience over and over again. And so it wasn't a 3 a.m. shower moment for me. It was a slow creep where I was like, this is, I'm frustrated every time I do this. I hate, like, why isn't there a good solution? What is the solution? And it was not until March, 2021. So a year later, um, th this company was born from a Twitter shitstorm because a tech person had 
tweeted, I've solved the problem of food blogs. I fixed food blogs. Here's my scraper tool. You can throw in the URL. It'll return you with the ingredients, the directions, bam, food blogs are fixed. Um, and there was so much backlash from creators and general human beings who have the ability to empathize with creators saying, this is shitty. Like you're taking their copyrighted materials and using it for yourself without creators getting any benefit from it. Um, so wait, was, I'm going to pause you. Is it just shitty or is that actually illegal? Cause that feels it's actually not recipes Ew. are a weird fall under a weird copyright thing. The ingredients list and basic instructions cannot be copyrighted essentially. And so it's the storytelling part. It's the photography. If they were taking the photography, that's a copyrighted image. Gotcha. They're taking the life story that's copyrighted copy, but a list of ingredients and instructions can't be copyrighted because, you know, any ingredients over overlap and recipes overlap a lot. Sure. Um, so it would be very hard to go legally after that in that context. And that, that kind of explains that. Like, and I don't know if it's true or not, but the yeah. old urban legend about how like the original Coca-Cola recipe is like hidden in a vault uh -huh. somewhere in Atlanta and three people. Patties. Yep. Yes. That like, yeah. it's that whole, if you have an amazing product, like you, that makes sense. If it's not copyrighted, if there wouldn't be any kind of legal protection, yeah. et cetera fascinating see now i learned it another thing today anna you are a wealth of information I'm excited you got mad at twitter and yep. you decided to fix the problem for real and you've done a great job of doing that so let's talk about the reality of being a lady in a very technically centric world of startup I don't know if you've heard, <laughs> but women in technology are not always given the same respect as men, Annie. Not at the top of the list of... No, yeah. no. We tend to get talked over, ignored, etc. As you are going through and meeting with the kind of partners you need to, to do this, etc., how do you find it? Because I find, like, I've just been doing this so long, I just don't give a shit. And I'll walk in and be like, psh. You want to fight with me? I've been doing this for 20 some odd years. Let's go. But that's me. And I'm not for everyone, but like I have the gravitas and like, and for the, the first 10 years, I definitely like just got pushed around a lot. This is fairly, I know that the marketing and the technology for the marketing, but like the other technology is a newer area for you. How are you handling that? How are you negotiating with that? What, how are you dealing with it in general? So part of it is that I am similar in that I am aggressive and assertive and i don't stand for people walking over me with that can get you blacklisted people can say she's a bitch she's aggressive i don't you know want to work with her i may face that i haven't faced that yet one one thing is i'm incredibly privi privileged in my life i essentially was born in a c-suite my dad was the vp of marketing for startups in the silicon valley um, so I have been negotiating with executives literally since I could babble as an idiot. It, it doesn't... It's a thing. And it also, I think you're right. It is such a privilege because it means that you have no fear, right? Like same. So my mom was, you know, VP of HR for a hyper global mm -hmm. mega corps, et cetera, companies. So psh, you learn. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, you it's ain't got like nothing I, I haven't seen. I didn't. I know what she looks like on Saturday morning. You don't yeah. like, you don't scare me. Yeah. Um, 
you, and but you learn the way that they talk and the way that they engage with each other and with and what they say about other people mm-hmm. when they're not in a professional setting. So you hear what they actually think and not like the corporate version yeah. of it as well. And I think, but I do think that what you said is so smart because I think this, just the downright fear is such a part of it. I have to remind my clients so often that they're like, especially with startups, that they are like, because it's your baby. And so the CEO is like, I must interview everyone. And I'm like, no, you must not (laughs) because you will scare the living shit out of them. Yeah. They were very nervous when they spoke to me. Yes. Are you aware that you are a CEO? And they're like, but I'm not. I'm just mm-hmm. Bob. And I'm like, mm, mm. to me, you are just Bob because I don't care that you're CEO. As long as your check clears and you're not a dick, yeah. we're fine. But but for a candidate, especially when you're hiring newer people onto the job market, etc., that little C is super intimidating to so many people. And especially that is definitely a form of business privilege to have come from an environment where you're like, "Eh, I see your (laughs) And, you know, it it makes it easier ladder because, and I think it's similar, like you will go for you know how to yourself have and banana hammock okay so yeah I agree though that it's like you it is so much privilege it is so much you and you and I you're right like we're just brassy I can tell we're cut from similar cloth we just one of my clients said the other day I was like, we're looking for a COO to work with you. What do you want? What's your type from a professional perspective? He's, I'm thinking 40 something pink hair tattoos who don't give a fuck. (laughs) We're a smaller list than you might've thought. (laughs) Yep. But we're out there, you know. We are, we are out there. And I think that, I think that it's good A, to remember that there's a lot of privilege that makes us and that B, that people in those positions have to remember what that looks like and feels. And I think that I am excited that there is a, another strong mouthy female out there who does not care what people think, who is leading a tech revolution in something that I even am really personally excited about. So I'm jazzed for all of those things. Where do you, here's one of the things that I find mystifying about startups. So perhaps you can help me. If I had an amazing idea for how to change the world and I have five a day, but If I had one that I actually was like, yes, this is the one we're going to do. I cannot imagine where I would go to find somebody to give me $30 million to make that a thing. As a serial entrepreneur, what is your first step? Like, how do you qualify? This is the one we're going to go to bat for, and this is where we're going to find somebody to give us the money to make this a thing. Hopefully you have experienced people in your network. And I would say lean heavily on the people when you trust. For me, that's the person who's joining me as a co-founder. He hired me as his 
growth hacker, growth marketer a few weeks before I had graduated with my bachelor's degree. And he has treated me since day one as an equal partner, as if six, seven years down the line, this is what we would be doing. He treated me like that from the first day that he met me and he has extensive, he's like an early investor in companies like UpCouncil and Coinbase, significant startups, tech startups. And so I <laughs> lean heavily on his experience and his network and it's- But again, there's a privilege with that, right? Not everybody is walking around with an angel investor in their network. Yep. And that's so not a thing. I have a couple in mind at this point, but really I could call and be like, hey, <laughs> All right, I have a question and how do we make this happen? And if they thought it was a good idea, honestly, I probably could get some advice, get some help, have in all of the intros that I needed, but so much privilege. And again, yep. I have a, a fluke of fate in terms of what I do for a living because I have 20 years of recruitment connections, working with a lot of startups who also therefore innately have investors. <laughs> related to them, like I have more of a network in that direction than other. Where does that, where would you tell somebody, somebody came to you and said, Annie, help me. Where would you say to go? What is this? Do you just like Google angel investors and send everybody a love letter and a bouquet of, of flowers? What do you do? So what I, I, I am not actually actively looking for investment and I have accepted $0 of investment so far. Again, you have to be in a privileged place to be able to do that. So I understand that obviously not everyone can pay, pay to work instead of work to get paid. If you build things slowly and sustainably, you don't necessarily need investment and investment has a lot of pros and cons. Um, including a lot of cons, which is something that we don't hear about when we talk about startups, is that when you have investors, you don't have full control over your company. You're expected to grow at an accelerated rate that maybe isn't sustainable to the business or you're not doing things as well as you can. And so that's why I've, with heavy encouragement from this business advisor who previously was an investor in a lot of significant companies. His biggest advice to me is pump the brakes, prove out the business concept, understand your audience and your customer before you put money in. He's telling me, don't do paid acquisition. Don't run advertisements to gain customers, grow things organically as a community from the start. And then we can take those next steps later. Once we know that the business model works because half the time, or probably 80% of the time you're pivoting, you're not, you know, starting with the exact product or the exact, you know, business structure or the exact, you know, payment structure, revenue structure that you're going to end up with in the long term. Learning all of those lessons before accepting investment, that's going to get you really far. And then the other thing that I've learned also from the same person is to add a ton of value to everyone. And I connected with this person, not through family, not through university connections. I replied to a Craigslist ad. He was looking for a growth hacker. I was living in Idaho. He was in Southern California, but my little brother lived in Southern California. So I was just browsing Craigslist and I was, I replied to the ad. And I think what he saw in me was that I was adding value without having a contract signed. I gave him, I took a look at the website. I told him, you know, what I thought of it, where I thought he could go with it. That's different, obviously, than them saying, do a free paid project, work project for me, work for free, and then we'll decide. But I was adding value up front. And that's something that he does with 
everyone that he meets. I've had friends of friends who are like, I'm doing this. And I'm like, let me connect you with him. He will add value to you. And so that's something that I am trying to adopt too, is when someone asks me a question, I listen and I ask questions and I add value to them for free without strings, without expectations. Um, and that builds a network that you can rely on in the future. And that's so important because I obviously come from a place of privilege and have connections that I wouldn't otherwise, you know, I'm not denying anything that I have it easier than a lot of people would. I also work hard and I, I, I work to build relationships that are meaningful and to stay in touch with people in meaningful ways, not just so that I can use them later. 99% of the connections that I have, I will add more value to them than favors I call in. But there's that 1% where the people in my network want to support me. And so when I say I need help with that, they're like, yes, let me help you. Let me connect you with this person or put in a good word here. I think, so I have this friend who is the most ridiculously charming human being you've ever met in your life. Everybody loves her. She can walk into any room, no matter how hostile. And they're like, everybody walks out. Even if they still hate each other, they can all agree yep. that she is the best person in the world. I am not that. <laughs> she is insanely good at it and her personal and professional brand are incredible she has she accidentally has like giant like online followings just by virtue of being like the biggest delight that anybody's ever known i've known her since she was 12 i feel slightly differently about her <laughs> but like you know but one of and i, I was obviously we talk about it a lot about how to what is this weird voodoo magic and last time we talked about it, she kind of sighed and she said, yeah, Michelle, I think that probably in a professional, because she's like personal, that's different. She said, but in a professional capacity, she said, I think probably the thing that I do the most that I have found I get most irritated that people don't do is that every time I'm talking to somebody for the first time, I'm thinking, how can I help this person? And most of the time when people are engaging with me, they're thinking, how can she help me? And if you just, she's like, just flip the script, go into every engagement. How can I help this person? And then go from there. And I, and I did, I actually listened to her advice and I will say that it, I've previously, like, I'm not the kind of like self-interested person that I would go and be like, how can you, what can you do for me today? But I would just yep. be like, this is just interesting. And it turns out that not everybody enjoys directionless, interesting for the sake of conversations, shocking, but going in with the objective of, Hey, how can I help you has really turned things around for me. And so it, it sounds like that's what your uh, purporting as well. And I love that idea. Yeah. Like how can I add value to anyone who approaches yeah. me? And the other thing is you are asking, I'm starting a startup. How do I do it? How do I have those resources? The answer is do it before don't like you will have ideas, but do it now. If you aren't starting a startup now, build these relationships, talk to people, help people in your industry, in other industries, in like cross relational ways. So that in two years, when you have that great idea, you have a strong network. And this is one of the things I tell my clients all the time, same advice, different context, which is when they say to me, oh, I'm looking for a job. What should I do on LinkedIn? It was like six weeks ago. Yep. 
you should have done this. People wait until they're in need. And actually, I think that I have all kinds of deep thoughts I have about this, about like the fragmentation of our society and we cloister ourselves in our homes and we don't reach out and networking and community aren't what they used to be, et cetera, et cetera. Those soapboxes to the side, I would say that if you, that every single person, and I do not care what job you have, what industry you work in, every single person in the whole wide world needs to have a substantial community network, including professional network that you maintain, that you put energy, that you put time into strengthening those connections. And I don't care if you're an introvert, massive introvert, still do it because shit happens and you never know when you're going to need to call on that network. And over and over, I see people who are in these situations where they're like, I've been at the same company for 20 years and I don't know anybody. So because I've been at the same company for 20 years, I can't know anybody. Well, that's bullshit. You've been at that company for 20 years. Everybody you worked with hasn't. Other people have gone other places, done other things. And if you had worked on maintaining and building those networks and connections, now you would know people all kinds of places. And that is huge. My my co-founder was previously my boss at the employment job that provides health insurance. And I left him. I left him and got bigger, better, higher paying, more prestigious job. He's a, sometimes you can't avoid hurting feelings, breaking relationships, but I did what I could to add value anyway, and make sure that the exit was good for everyone. And in a way that they could also continue growing and same with the big fancy job that I left, I called in, I, you know, called the, the president of that company, the CEO of that company who I worked with closely and gotten advice on this project. And, And it doesn't have to be bosses. It can be coworkers have a friend they went to school with. So building that network, like you're saying, within the job that you have is totally possible. But also we don't have to do networking so formally all the time. Like the people at your job and at other companies are people and they go to the gym. Maybe they go to church, they go to the grocery store. And so when you add value and talk to people. I've met great people at the gym. One of my best friends I met at the gym and she's also director of marketing for a notable restaurant chain. And I've met people who are professional athletes at the gym and they're also influencers, which it crosses over into what I do marketing. So just adding value, not only when someone says I have a cocktail and we're at networking hour, we're going to add, here's my business card, but When you're at the gym meeting people, not being a robot and being like, what's your job? Can you add value to my career? How can I help you and add value to your life? Then I know you as a person. I know what you do. Maybe it's related. Maybe it's completely not related. I'm still going to do what I can to add value to your life. But that's when, you know, your network expands tenfold, not just the the people you work with and the people your career has touched, but there are other human beings who also have to play in the capitalism sandbox and the people you meet at the gym or at church, or you're a mom meeting people at the playground. Like these are all human beings with jobs. And when you add value to them, they will pay it back. It's 2022 girl. We don't take our children to the playground. There's a pandemic. Come on (laughs) Too many people do. So if you're taking your children to the playground, but they don't talk, they're out there playing on their phones. And the kids are like, mommy, uh-huh. Like, come on. 
Yeah. Because before the pandemic, when I did take them to the playground, that's what I did. I was yeah. like, oh, good. I don't have to care about you for five minutes. Great. <laughs> so maybe not the playground. And, Bad you know, example. Good the, point. <laughs> I mean, the gym, the gym in a lot of cases is the same. You're working out. You don't want people bothering you. People don't want you bothering them sure. in, in the ways that we meet people and make friends, which for me is an incredibly slow and painful pro. Like I, I moved in March, have two friends in the area now, which is like a PR for me in terms of friends after moving, especially during a pandemic. But just be open to human connection, at even your introverted self, or meet people online in these types of spaces. I have tons of Instagram. I have Tumblr friends from a decade ago who, you know, collaborate with me when I need to brainstorm things, who have a variety of skills in work and in life and in art. And just be open to connection, but also add value and adding value. Isn't necessarily, I'm going to do work for you. It might mean I'm an ear. You can, you know, blab at when you're frustrated with your job. Yeah. And I think, again, I totally understand reticence around, I have one of my neighbors, she knows the entire freaking neighborhood, right? There's a thousand homes on our half of the neighborhood. And she probably knows every goddamn house because she's just that person. She's just a human hummingbird and talks to everyone and does her thing. I am not that person, but I do know my little cul-de-sac and I know some other people. And I guess for me, I think of meeting other people, having those kind of community connections. It's, it's like broccoli for adults, right? Like it's when you're a kid, like you may not like the broccoli, but it's good for you and you have to do it. As an adult, I recognize that all yeah. I want to do is sit in yoga pants and watch Netflix and eat ice cream. These are not healthy choices. I have to occasionally put on actual pants. I have to get off of the sofa occasionally and I have to engage with people. And so like, for me, it's one of those like healthy practice things yeah. is that you do have to get out. You do have to talk to people you have. I would really encourage people to have a goal. Like I'm going to add one new person to, my, if you're really that antisocial, cool, have like a, I'm. Every month, I'm going to meet one new person whose face I don't totally hate that I'm going to add to my network in one facet or another. And I think that having the UK, they talk about like your five a day. It doesn't have to be five a day, but it needs to be at least your one a month that you're growing that network that you're expanding. And then like you have to invest your time and energy into maintaining it. Because what you can't do is be like, hey, Susie, so you remember 10 years ago, we knew each other and I haven't ever spoken to you or heard from you since then. Now I need something that's in your wheelhouse. So how about that local sports team? Yep. Yeah. Do you want to come to my MLM party? That's how it comes across <laughs> when 10 years later, the people from high school are. Yeah. Have you thought about the joys of Pampered Chef? No, I have not. I like three of your products. I have no need for an MLM party to obtain three of your products. Yep. I'm good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I cannot believe this, but we are pretty much out of time because you're fabulous and easy to talk to. And obviously we're both geniuses because we think a lot of the same things. So what have I not asked you 
that I should have asked you? Or what are things that you want to make sure that we talk about before we go? Yeah, I'd love to share just how to become a customer of Recipe if you're interested in it, if you cook at home and you're sick of ads, but you have some empathy towards creators and don't just want to steal their shit for yourself and leave them in the dust. So you can visit our website. It'll be linked um, in the whatever section. Yep. Show notes. Yep. And so we, we have some offers right now. If you aren't sure you want to pay for a membership, we have a single recipe option. You can pay just $1, get your first recipe, try it out and see, is this for me? And then right now we're also running a promotion for our annual membership. It's $50 for the whole year, unlimited access to all of our recipes. If you sign up now, you'll be locked in at that price for life. Netflix, every two years, they bump their prices up. They bump their prices up. We have 1,100 recipes now. In a year when we have 50,000 recipes, we may be looking to bump our prices up. But when you sign up for the annual membership, you're locked in at that price forever. So I, I hope that'll add a lot of value to the people who are with us from the start and who add value to us. You're going to get my 50 bucks today. I'm in. I'm all uh, in. Yeah. So <laughs> um, all of that is amazing. Thank you so much. I really like genuinely enjoyed the conversation and I'm genuinely excited about Recipe. I highly recommend other people, anybody else who likes to cook, go and check you out. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The only thing I didn't ask you that I ask everybody right now, when you get asked, how much do you make? How do you answer that question? Shockingly, nobody asks me that. But I think they should. I think okay. that's an important question. I think pay transparency is important. Right now for Recipe, I'm making about negative $2,000. But in 2021, between a few different types of employment, I made about $120,000. And I wish that more people talked about it. And I, at my last role, had an inkling that a lot of people were very underpaid. And so on my way out, I told people my salary because it's, you feel like you're going to get in trouble when you talk about it. And I was leaving. And so I was like, if this helps do? empower yeah. you to eke out more money from the capitalist machine, like we, we should be talking about it more. <laughs> I try to be honest and transparent. And I hope that I continue that attitude as the big boss of, you know, this organization, when I have employees under me, have a transparent pay structure, because I think that's you know, just so important to help everybody earn a fair wage. I, I totally agree. I'm a big proponent of, I believe that everybody should have all of their salaries posted on the door. And I think it's the radical transparency is the only way that we, we bridge the gap. That is my personal view. Not enough people agree with me. But I do. About that. All right. See, I, this is why we're very smart, Annie. All right. And on the Annie and I are very smart notes, I shall bid everybody adieu. Thank you guys so much. And we'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to, Hey, I want your job. For more information on how you can get your own awesome job, visit ONH Consulting at www.onhconsulting.com. We offer incredible resumes, no-nonsense career advice, and real-world tips for landing a job in today's market. Check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Insta for more insider information. Soon, you'll be hearing us say, I'm Michelle Olivier, and hey, I want your job. <laughs>